Welcome friends, welcome enemies, welcome listeners, welcome readers to the Savage Reading Podcast. This is James, uh, host number one of two hosts, or just to be uh, polite, I'll take the number two slot and Mark can have the number one slot. This is the first episode and in this episode we're going to be talking about George Orwell's very famous 1984. Before I get into the conversation, I wanted to explain a little bit why I allude to this being a potentially underread book. And uh, one thing I should say is that this is the first time I actually ever read this book. Um, It's one of those books that sat on my shelf for probably about 10 or 15 years before I actually got around to uh, reading it for the occasion of this podcast. And it's true that this book is still frequently assigned in, say, high school courses and college courses. And for, at least for non-British readers, uh, if they were to be asked to name, like, the first British book that popped into their head, this would be the book. And the reason I think that it's underread is because more than probably any other book, Sales and discussions of 1984 tend to respond so like uh, immediately to whatever is going on in the world. And that's a good thing in, in as much as it shows how, uh, how Orwell really kind of took a very good idea. And it is an excellent idea, even though, as you'll hear in the conversation, we don't necessarily think it's always the best book. But it's an excellent idea that that resonates, you know, um, you know, quite thoroughly with people and, and across a you know a broad range of issues. The problem, though, I think with that is that it tends to be a book where anybody can project their politics on it. Uh, it is a book where it, whether or not you are far to the left or far to the right, you can always find something in the book that is a manifestation of your worst fears for what's going to happen to a society. The last round of Orwell mania that's come about was in response to somebody in the Trump administration, I think it was Kellyanne Conway, talking about alternative facts. And of course that uh, made the novel shoot up to the top of the Amazon bestseller list. And uh, you know, half dozen articles were dashed off about doublethink and newspeak. Most of the commentary that I've looked at just in the last couple of days um, regarding the kind of recent upsurge in you know sales of the book, discussion of the book, really focus more on the the devices that Orwell uses to represent control. The idea of newspeak, the idea of doublethink, uh, the ideology of Ingsoc, the figure of Big Brother, the uh, sort of constant state of war with rotating enemies. Those are probably the most enduring aspects of the book, but you'll notice that 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 in itself is not actually have anything to do with the plot. It doesn't really have anything to do with do you like Winston Smith as a character? Do you find the construction of this society even believable? Did Orwell actually successfully um, create a plot as opposed to just sort of creating a series of um, 
very kind of trenchant ideas about how language works in a you know a political system and um, this idea that the novel the sales in the novel is a response to Trump is a response to you know what's going on is something that I think we're going to discuss a little bit in the conversation is that how exactly is this a response what exactly um, does that response entail because the the book itself is pretty pessimistic it doesn't give you any kind of way out of this system I, like the the uh, the ending is pretty grim you know if uh, you haven't read it before and so exactly how people are responding other than just feeling clever because they read that little appendix that Orwell put at the end about Newspeak is uh, kind of beyond me. But saying all that, we'll move right on to the conversation. Bye. So at this point, I guess we haven't really talked about 1984. I've got to keep looking at the microphone. Um, I've got to remember to point right I move around a lot yeah um so uh yeah how did you how did you like think we could start this um what it, oops, um I think that I thought one way we could possibly start discussing this would be uh, to maybe think about it as a book of the moment in the sense that after like um, Trump got elected, I think it was like two days when this book was like number one on the Amazon.com bestseller list, which I think happens like every time anybody is elected in the United <laughs> States is um, to, is like people just buy 1984. And so we could start talking about it like that uh-huh. and whether or not this act, like that's actually a good instinct. Um, I don't think it's a great <laughs> yeah because um because the other books that that um appeared on the um, Amazon bestseller list was the origins of totalitarianism um that and what uh and the handmaid's tale those both kind of oh but then that that might have been to do with the TV series but but those both yeah. also kind of like rocketed up the so the as a book of the moment because what what I was thinking about when uh, well, when I was reading this and kind of probably related to that is how is how this book is one of those books that already feels sort of pre-read that you you can't really come at it innocently because it's so like it, everything that's in it has already been sort of said and it's like become cliche almost to, yeah. to have like you know to throw in like people refer to big brother and things like this i mean that was a tv show and and yeah. what oh yeah it was a tv show yeah well but what i was thinking was like that well i was thinking it's is it possible to like imagine that that like there's an innocent way of reading 1984 like can we imagine what it was like to read it Without having all that baggage, which probably we we can't, but um, but I was wondering like how much that sense of inevitability actually like feeds into the book itself because the book has a sort of like drive towards like, you know it feels relentless 
it's got the end coming. Yeah. But that also is sort of added to by the fact that you already know what the end is because you can't really not know. So you're saying like inevitability, inevitability, you don't mean like the political inevitability that like we'll all end up living in in a totalitarian society, but like the inevitability that you pretty much kind of know what the book is, how the book is going to end. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, I mean, like that—that that sort of like sense of, of it being pre-read is now. I can admit to you that this is the first time I've ever read this book, oh, well. uh, and and I was really cognizant of of no, what I knew about the book going into it because it it obviously was like one of those books that I had on my shelf for. A good decade, I think, uh, before I actually got around to reading it, and it wasn't even this copy. This is the copy I got from the library. Uh, yeah, so um, like, I mean, for so many people, like it, it, it's, it's probably one of those books that people feel that that they ought to have read already, maybe more than any other novel. So, so like, how does my theory? like test out then like did is that correct did you feel like the the book had did you already have a sense of what you were going to read? yeah i mean i knew what i knew what the ending was going to be i knew that that at the end of this winston smith was going to like come and accept big brother as as some kind of savior mm-hmm. um and uh and i knew I knew that this was a book of kind of deep p- political pessimism, which I still think is the case. Like, in fact, I think it's probably having read it now, it's probably more pessimistic than I even thought. I kind of had a general sense of what the relationship was between Big Brother and Goldstein. There are a couple of surprising things that that I found in the book and maybe we'll talk about those a little bit later i kind of wanted to also spend some time talking about this book as a piece of dystopian fiction because i think that's the element that i probably found most boring i think that there's a bit of thomas more in that kind of project like i didn't think that orwell was going to take that utopian plan so seriously which he seems to do so quite a bit yeah. what do you mean by you the like the utopian plan the that the the sort of utopian genre of here's a story or a narrative or a plot but that's really just pretense to really have a kind of long sociological historical or political analysis and description like a kind of clinical description of a society basically the whole plot of utopia is raphael hifliday having an argument with a couple of people at dinner about like what would be a good government but for for thomas moore's project that's that's a bit of a ruse like really what he wants to get into is imagining what this society would look like and so over half of that novel, or it's a novella, yeah, whatever, it's, it was written in the 16th century, so over half of that was so kind of based on on just, now I'm going to talk about what family life is like. Now I'm going to talk about what the political structure is lo- uh, looks like. Now I'm going to talk about how land is distributed, and things like that. 
So, I mean, that's really what utopia is. And I really feel like that's a lot of what, what 1984 is. I was talking to somebody the other day about this book, and she said that 1984, you could probably summarize the entire novel, or at least the plot of the entire novel, in one sentence. And I think that's probably the case. There's very little here that, that I would consider a plot, but quite a lot that is political theory and sociological kind of uh, description. I just started to find some of that stuff tedious, man. By the time it got into like Emmanuel Goldstein's <laughs> treatise on the revolution betrayed, you know, the, the uh, could this be like half the, the length that it actually is? Because it's like 40 pages. And, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, it, it's, not a, it's not a gripping thriller of a novel. No, no, no. It's, um, I mean, it's got lots of, I mean, because like that thing about Emmanuel Goldstein that, that that's kind of really interesting, actually, but but like I don't know what it says about like all of that political theory that you're talking about is is the fact that it turns out that that Emmanuel Goldstein's text um was written by O'Brien um which which I think is like there seems to be like a, to me like this kind of weird contradiction in this book where on the one hand it's about the like it's about the idea that it's possible to construct a, a totalitarian um, system where there's no, where there's no like private escape not not even like within like the depth of your mind can you escape the totalitarian system and yet and yet like there's this sort of odd logic to it which in order for that to work somebody who works right at the top of that system has to be producing documents that are um, sort of convincing enough of an analysis that they're sort of subverting it, even though actually it's part of a ruse in order to. So, so you know, I'm losing my 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 train of thought here. No, but I, I had that thought too that that Goldstein's text was a ruse of some kind. But like, let's like do the step by step of that logic, right? Is that in order to be a true believing party member, you need to believe that the party has enemies and that, that in order to provide, you know, evidence, I guess that would be evidence in quotes, um, of a threat to the party, the party itself starts pr producing like a subversive text. Now that's not quite it, is it? Like, because, because it, that's the thing, it's not like, in the, if it was an if it was a text that was just pure enemy, then it wouldn't be so good at analyzing the system. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because I thought O'Brien is a sort of weak point for like the totalitarian system, and if there are more O'Briens, then there's more weak points because O'Brien not only does he write this kind of um, the Goldstein text, but he also when he's when he's um, sort of torturing Winston. He also like has this sort of impulse to sort of do these speeches where he he lays out all the bare bones of this of the society that that like it seems like he knows he knows too much where it's where the whole kind of thing about 
the like newspeak and and the the, the totalitarianism of the novel is that somehow you've got to um you've you've got to like damage the ability to to know what's going on so how like it seems like o'brien he knows too much and he says too much the the thing about like goldstein no sorry not goldstein o'brien right is that um Maybe this is sort of one of the, the, the points that like any good political theorist would really start like hammering into is that Orwell seems to believe that in order for this system to be constructed, it has to be done so consciously. And um, in that in order for it to be done consciously, that there has to be at the very least one person who is completely cognizant of this whole kind of plan. I mean, well, it's sort of like when after, after Smith has been in the prison for a little while and like O'Brien comes in and, and uh, Winston Smith says like, oh, they got you too. And, and O'Brien says, they got me a long time ago, right? Like O'Brien knows that the 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 system or the ideology that the Ingsoc you know ideology is a complete and utter sham, but at the same time he fully is devoted to it. So he both believes it and does not believe it. The whole and, thing. Yeah, that's the part of the thing that I just wasn't quite. I wasn't quite getting my head around like the, the I mean the the double thing it's like for Orwell it seems to be a little bit too conscious too consciously constructed where where there's these party members like saying no you can somehow like partition your mind into two separate units that don't speak to each other and I don't know like the closest thing that we come to to like double think like I think in a contemporary time is more just like irony. Like but the thing is that irony is really is like the kind of double think that knows it's double think and so ah it is a contradiction, but then again I think that's probably like part of Orwell's point is the I mean I I guess to to me oh, it's yeah. sort of yeah, I mean to me it's 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 Orwell trying to kind of I mean it's an idea about it's an ide- it's ideology that he's talking about double think he's talking about like the capacity to kind of um like or, or he's miss he's miss characterizing ideology because and the reason why i say that is because i think there are there's this kind of weird separation between double think which yeah. is what the 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 party officials that's what that's what you do if you're in the party you have this capacity to to sort of simultaneously think two opposing thoughts, yeah. but then the opposition is the proles who are just um, presented as sort of the simple people who who are easily manipulated by the the party propaganda and can just be sort of coaxed into any kind of action that the party wants them to have, and they don't need to they don't need to be able to have double think. They don't need to. To have that sort of sophisticated, like split in their minds, because they're just this sort of simple, manipulatable. Yeah. Can I say, like, one of the things that actually really did surprise me about this book is that 
I think that that popular discussion and discourse about this book is that it is a totalitarian society in that it affects all of us. That that from the highest party member, the highest politician, down to the lowest street urchin, they're really trying to like the the totalitarian apparatus is trying to know and control what you think. And that's not the case in this book because like he does talk about how as far as like the proles or like the working class or the the just vast mass of, of the, the the nation, the totalitarian apparatus doesn't give a dick about them. It keeps some kind of monitoring of what they're doing. But like as you said, they don't need newspeak. They don't need double think. They don't need Ingsoc. And so that the real kind of intense, you know, cognitive orthodoxy that does constitute the totalitarian system, that's for party members. That's for party members and the rest of the society, screw them. Let's make, you know, if it turns out they're getting out of hand, you know, kill a few of them. But, but that, that, that is the part of the population, even though it's the largest part of the population, that you basically just control with like the iron fist. Like it, it, that is basically just the police state, but it's not necessarily trying to worry about what they believe on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I think that's probably a really interesting way to talk about whether or not these sort of periodic uh, exclamations of like 1984 is like the book of the moment because it's going to teach you how to, it's not going to teach you shit. <laughs> like, it, like at least in terms of like, polit- like, you know, organizing politically to like, um, you know, democratize and, and make transparent the society in which you live. I don't think that this book's going to teach you much of anything because no. it's too pessimistic. Yes. Yeah, far too pessimistic. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's just it, it feels like it's just a book that's designed to produce hopelessness. It's a, it seems like it's a book that's been designed to neutralize any sort of resistance to to uh, to totalitarianism. Yeah, this isn't from like the book, but it's it's some um, some quotation from uh, a, like Orwell's response to a review of the book shortly after it was published. Um, and he said, it has been suggested by some of the reviewers of 1984 that it is the author's view that this or something like this is what will happen inside the next 40 years in the Western world. This is not correct. I think that allowing for the book being, after all, a parody, something like 1984 could happen. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. And when I was reading that bit on the train there, like uh, just a couple hours ago, I'm thinking like, whoa, <laughs> like don't let it happen to you. Like, it, like there's so much of like a kind of closed system that Orwell has drawn here that like I cannot for the life of me figure out how Orwell believes that it it won't happen. Like, uh, or or not so much how or. How he believes that that people could prevent it from happening, because that's I mean that's like the moral of the book, isn't it? That that it's it, it, like the private space of the individual, like because because if there's any 
if there's any hope in it, which I don't think there is, but like the 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 thing that he seems to want to craft out as hope is like the possibility deep down inside of yourself to have a sort of slightly resistant thought towards like the totalitarian system yeah. and that and basically like that is resistance and that's how that's how deeply he imagines the possibility of this totalitarian society that that resistance is like is is sort of purely at the level of the unconscious if you're lucky <laughs> <laughs> that's so yeah so 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 when he says like don't let it happen to you does he mean that does he mean that like if it's inevitable then then we just have to kind of like pass through it is that is it does it just happen anyway yeah. um well i was going to one of the things i i was wanting to to discuss was new speak and, yeah, and language but in particular I don't know what you thought, but one of the like so you read the the appendix, the the principles of Newspeak. Did you have that in your copy? Like I, I thought, what was quite curious about it is that it's hard to tell from what perspective it's written in. And I mean, if you read it a long time ago, you might not remember this. I don't remember. But um, but so basically, it's it's written in the style of an essay, right? Yeah. But it's at the end of this book. It's an appendix at the end of this book. And it's not really clear whether it's whether it's supposed to be taken seriously in itself or or if it's some kind of like text from the world of the novel. And but there are some really, really odd things about it. So first of all, it says, um so it was expected that Newspeak would have finally superseded Old Speak by about the year twenty fifty. So there's this kind of sense of um, of new speak on a sort of timeline, um, whereby like by twenty fifty it it would have been complete. So this kind of tone of like that that sounds like a sort of his history of new speak, but then then there's like these odd bits of of um well twists in time or space where he says new speak was founded on the English language as we now know it. Though many Newspeak sentences, even when not containing newly created words, would be barely intelligible to an English speaker of our own day. So, Newspeak was founded on the English language as we now know it. Newspeak was founded, so Newspeak in the past was founded on the English language as we now know it. Which would be Newspeak, right? Well, it would be Newspeak if we're in the world of the novel. Yeah. But um but it would be barely intelligible to an English speaker of our own day. So an English speaker of our own day sounds like he's just writing to his own readers of his own day. Um and there's another bit where he says uh, and in addition only a person thoroughly grounded in Ingsoc could appreciate the full force of the word bellyfeel which implied a blind enthusiastic acceptance difficult to imagine today. Uh, and then in the last uh, the last sentence of this essay it says it was chiefly in order to allow time for the preliminary work of translation that the final adoption of Newspeak had been fixed for solely a date as 2050 which sounds like which sounds like it's speaking from some kind of position in the world of the novel again yeah yeah um why did like so why did this bother me 
because I don't know what he's trying to do here. <laughs> like it, like it, it seems in, it seems inconsistent with the the fictional world or or like his purpose. Either he's trying to write about the idea of newspeak for his contemporary reader or for for us, or he's trying to like create a document that should exist within the world of newspeak. <laughs> it sounded like a chime. But but the the thing is that if so if it's written within the world of newspeak, then it's not written in newspeak. If it's a history of newspeak, it's written it it, it should be written in newspeak because by the time that the history of newspeak will be written, it like there wouldn't be English, but it's written in English. Yeah, it's it's like Orwell wants to kind of adopt the mentality, but he can't really adopt the language because this this little pamphlet would be unintelligible, right? <laughs> and but it, but th- that's the like that's part of like the the weird kind of contradiction is because he he thinks that language shapes mentality, right? I mean, and so it's like I don't think there's any way that that Orwell could be consistent. Unless he were just to step out of the novel itself in this pamphlet, say like, I, George Orwell, am going to write this pamphlet um, to explain a certain concept that I have come up with for my novel. Tear off the fictional cloak and just say that that now this is just um, something I'm doing for the fiction. Whereas he doesn't seem to really want to like tear off that cloak in that pamphlet. No, and he, he and he doesn't because well, because he he couldn't because he's tr- he has to write about newspeak as if it's something real. So it's some, yeah. so it's fi- I mean it's a work of fiction. He's talking about like an invented language. Yeah. So um, yeah, it just to, I, I don't know. It just to me it just is sort of symptomatic of of this novel as a whole as being full of full of flaws and that and that's it, it, it like logical flaws which really bothers me because because I feel like his his idea of totalitarianism is based on a kind of sympathy for the for the totalitarian mindset because he the the presumption of this novel is that a totalitarian thinker is is a more superior thinker than all the other people in the world. Yeah. You know, in in this world in this world of of um of nineteen eighty four, there's a hierarchy of intelligence. Winston is always you know the on, at the bottom you've got the simple minded proles, then you've got Winston and the sort of like the the outer party sort of functionaries, but Winston is in awe of O'Brien who like is just this like. To Winston is just a much more sophisticated thinker, and what's gone wrong in this world is that, is that there, and and this is something I find really like, like difficult with this novel is that it presumes that there are these different levels of intelligence that are sort of, that are just, that 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 can't be transcended, can't be altered, and what goes wrong in this world is that the most intelligent people abuse their ability and um and, and capacity for understanding uh, in order to like maintain their own their own power 
So there's no so so why this novel feels so hopeless, I think, is because is because it doesn't allow for for any kind of possibility of somebody from any other layer of the society to 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 even mentally be able to challenge the logic of of the totalitarianism like a, a like you know Winston always says like that there must be hope with the proles but the proles offer no hope because like the way that they're characterized is that they're just kind of mindless animal humans yeah so but that's the way that George Orwell has, has, has kind of like presented us with with human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and and basically that's what the what Goldstein like the Goldstein pamphlet says as well. That there's always been high, middle, and low, yeah. and and all of human history is just yeah. like it, it goes around between the the middles like are always challenging for the for the high, but the lows are always lows. Yeah. And but but what I'm saying is that. If you so, if you're imagining this kind of like um, totalitarianism based on a sort of perfection of of self consciousness, because that's what that's what I think it is. Like that's it's this idea that that the sort of most intelligent people have become so hyper aware of like history and their and the power of history that they are able to to manipulate all of it to their own advantage. Then there are sort of like all these. There are logical flaws in the system that he's that he portrays that mean that that system is not the one that he thinks it is. Well, for example, Winston Smith. Okay. Yeah. He's just one of many, right? For this yeah. system to go to work, you have to have probably like hundreds of thousands of like people who are because they don't have like they don't seem to have like computers. So, no, so, so, like it means that. So, like so really, it's a it's a massive bureaucracy, and yeah. it's a massive bureaucracy of people who are constantly, um, like rewriting and reworking like the archive of of the past. Yeah. But in order for that that thing to exist, then each of those people has to constantly being reminded that. In order for that system to exist, then every day, those people that go into work, like Winston Smith, and get a a message of what they've got to do for the day. Every single day, they're being reminded that their job is to rewrite the past, yeah. and yet the whole system is based on the idea that somehow they will forget that that that. The past is being rewritten, yeah. but they're the ones that are doing it. So, like, it seems like it seems like the totalitarianism of the system is is flawed because it's constantly reminding the the subjects of the of the totalitarian sort of worldview that the totalitarian worldview is is in flux. Yeah. And I was thinking in comparison to today. Um, you know, like like what you've been saying, like people go back to this novel whenever they need a, a sort of totalitarianism to be afraid of, yeah. and the thing is that what what goes on today is something that's that's far more sophisticated and in terms of like how power works, because what happens today today is that 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 information circulates 
without any sort of outside position of like absolute truth. So there's no like there's no sense of like who is correct and who is right that we can appeal to. And and in fact because of that like there's there's this huge sense of sort of anxiety because because nobody sort of is able to control like truth. Um that's not that's that's not exactly what I mean. But what but in the novel Big Brother has to believe in has to believe in a certain quality of truth in order for it to function. And the thing that Big Brother has to do in the novel is that it has to it has to create a sense of consistency in the historical narrative. So Big Brother is is simultaneously um, doesn't believe that it doesn't believe in truth in the sense that history can be sort of rewritten at will. But in order for history to be re- rewritten at will, it has to be a consistent, logically constructed narrative. That no, there's that that like discussion that O'Brien is having with with Winston, where he's like talking about the nature of history and that history is effectively it doesn't exist. There's no uh, objective existence of history. That all history really is is the evidence of like artifacts and the impressions of our memories, right? So in that sense, there's that recognition that history is utterly malleable and utterly ephemeral and and completely um, like in many ways quite relative and subjective and all of that. And yet at the same time, even after acknowledging that, it becomes completely uh, completely determined to develop a kind of objective sense of content, continuous history. And so, it, it's, I mean, I think what you're saying uh, about in comparison with our contemporary time is that there seems to be like no real, like, there, like everybody kind of knows exactly what O'Brien knows. I think we've lost that sense that that maybe continuous histories are pretty good. And even though like we can sort of intelligently and maturely keep in mind all of those caveats about how like it doesn't really objectively exist, it only exists in the evidence of artifacts. It is often subject to um, memory, which can be highly flawed and very subjective and biased and, and all of that and filled with gaps. Um, but at the same time, we do have a possibility of building something coherent that shows you how we got to where we are now. Um, and that may not necessarily be the last word as like Big Brother is trying to do on a day-to-day basis is present history as the last, like the kind of objective last word. But it's like, if you give up on that project altogether, then I think that you have a form of totalitarianism that actually kind of makes Big Brother look a little cheap. Because then it's just, it's then just much more a kind of political discourse that is more affected by who can scream the loudest 
and um, who uh, who's got the, the the flashiest thing to say? Because um, that's the the I mean that kind of brings me back to to this um, sense of like complicity there um, and and like how in order to kind of uh, understand this total in order to kind of work the totalitarian system you both have to fully believe it and have to um, also know it's sort of dark underbelly and know what it's doing uh, on, on the on the totalitarian level and it, what it reminded me of was that like the there's that scene in the um, the cafeteria where Winston is having a conversation with this other dude named Sim and Sim is like a true believer for the party. But at the same time, he, he keeps talking about like what new speak is doing on the kind of operative level. And then at some point Winston thinks to himself and just says, Sim's going to be vaporized. And it's just because he knows too much and he speaks too much like that, even though he has no doubt in his mind that Sim fully believes in like the principles of the party that that it's not unconscious enough for him he's constantly reminding himself and other people too much about what the party is about where it needs to be a little bit more kind of unconscious and ingrained and instinctual and into i think like maybe even like orwell used the word like stupid or something like that that you've got to like believe it but you've got to have to believe it stupidly too uh, but the thing is that like again how do you how does that work because these are people that like winston smith is constantly having conversations with people who are really intelligent who are like shown to be very intelligent because the thing is is that at least from like orwell's narrative viewpoint if they were the kind of like intelligently stupid people that winston smith seems to think that they should be then all of that glorious exposition, like Orwell would not be able to put it in there. He needs he needs like like these contradictory characters yeah. in order to explain all of this to the reader. Yeah, in fact, in fact, like it's interesting that you say that because there's only one character I, uh, I can't remember the name. Uh, you 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 know his neighbor who's like who's got the kids that that yeah like, yeah it's like Parsons Parsons yeah. yeah. And there's only Parsons that really kind of represents a, a sort of true believer and a, and a and a sort of an idiot in the sense that like Winston thinks Sim should be, um. But he ends up like in prison with Winston anyway. Yeah. yeah. But like almost all the other characters are have got like that kind of like cynical awareness of what's actually yeah. going on and like and and it's something that I think is it's kind of annoying about the book is that it doesn't really like paint enough of a detailed picture about like the about the society that you know it's it's a 300 page novel well at least in my copy is a 300 page novel and and you get like a very like limited sense of of how the world actually works it's a it's a world that's constantly being described abstractly and theoretically. Yeah. But but in practice, like there's there's Winston, there's like his neighbours, there's um a couple of his colleagues, 
there's a Brian who's who's also a sort of double agent for the thought police in a way. And there's um there's Julia. Is the the shopkeeper who ends up selling him out? Yeah. And then he was the thought police, wasn't he? He's a member of the thought police. And then there's just that like washerwoman who like Winston keeps staring at, which I um and the hum the humble charwoman. Yeah. <laughs> and and there's the drunk there's the drunk guy in the pub. Yeah, who's like trying to explain things but can't remember what what yeah. uh, like any history and he's like, Oh, these people are too addled. But that that here's the thing, like now we're going back to sort of like who Orwell is and how he thinks, right? He's he is a kind of professed socialist, right? But I think that that on some level, if you're gonna be a, like a, a socialist, you have to believe that people's sort of capacities, whether or not you consider them innate or learned or whatever, are equal enough that you can have a system where everybody is putting in, you know, well, I mean, to the old, like, you know, communist slogan, each accord, from, uh, from each according to ability to each according to need. You, you have to, you have to be able to envision a humanity where differences in innate capacities or learned capacities are not so great that, that the, the society would fall apart or are, you know, correctable or a or or the society can compensate for those innate capacities, right? I don't know that that Orwell believes that. I like, like the the sort of image of the proles. Uh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I was sort of reading this through Orwell. I don't know if I was reading this as as Winston Smith or. Orwell, just sort of, you know, puppeteering Winston Smith. But the image of the proles is so kind of full of contempt. And so kind of like, uh, they're drunk. They can't remember anything. They spend too much time with the lottery. They get into stupid fights. And then every once in a while, you know, the saving grace is that 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 humble little charwoman who is like doing her washing. She's literally the one good prole that that Winston Smith kind of encounters. Yeah, but although it's like you say contempt, but it's a sort of like it, it, how he really kind of like does them in is because it's a sort of loving contempt. You yeah. Know, it's, yeah. It's... There, there is a lot of like that kind of like sentimentality of like. The, the humble English working class there. So yeah, there is a kind of loving contempt there. Just that whole bit about like, I, the, I have just one question is like, why does Orwell keep talking about bodies? Like he's just constantly going on and on describing people's bodies and like Julia's body and the charwoman's body and Winston Smith's body. And it leads to that that kind of like really important moment where O'Brien makes him look in the mirror and oh, yeah, being, yeah, yeah. And, you know like there's a whole page uh, it's a whole like huge long paragraph yeah, yeah it's very yeah. disgusting yeah and it's all about like it's all about like how how Winston uh, like until uh, like at this point Winston's been tortured for like he doesn't know how long yeah and he's been like he, but he but he's also not seen himself he doesn't he doesn't know what he's become and and O'Brien, it's like O'Brien's demonstration of his power is by sort of turning Winston or showing Winston a, a, a mirror 
and Winston sort of seeing the 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 sort of way that his body has been just totally sort of reduced to I mean when I was reading it I was thinking about yeah. um like you know concentration camps and and like you know it talks about like this sort of emaciation like the sunken cheekbones and and just like this the way that he's sort of aged and and it you know that and it is true you know this novel when when was it like nineteen 19- it was it was written between forty seven and forty eight, yeah. I think. And then it was published in forty eight. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, because obviously it's like because that's one of the things about it is that it is reflecting on the Second World War. Yeah. On on like not just like it, although it's about like although it's like clearly kind of like talking about Stalinism, it also is talking about Nazism. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. um. While I was reading about, um, or I was like looking stuff up about Orwell, and what I came across was, uh, so it's called it's called James Burnham. So basically, um, in nineteen forty one, this guy called James Burnham wrote a book, and James Burnham was a, a American Trotskyist who sort of became a a, a conservative thinker, and in nineteen forty one, he wrote a book called The Managerial Revolution. And this was like after his sort of break with uh, with communism, and he, uh, and he basically said he 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 said that like where power was going to lie in the future was in with managers and bureaucrats and technocrats, and basically he imagined. Does that sound like C. Wright Mills's work? Like uh, C. Wright Mills came out with a book like in the the late fifties, early sixties, called like the power elite and it's all about a sociology of managerialism and a uh, sociology of like technocrats yeah Yeah. so well and and orwell wrote a review of this book and it's quite interesting because uh because what he talks about in the or what he kind of highlights in the review and i think he so he wrote the review around about 1941 i think um and in the review he talks about um how this novel imagines that he he like what Burnham saw was that he he looked at Nazism and um and communism as basically two examples of the same phenomenon, um which was an an increased kind of like bureaucratic state, and what he what he said was that America was going in the same way, and he and and what he proposed in this book and and Orwell writes about is that he he said that. That basically where the future was going was was going to be like increased kind of globalized management, and he imagined that there would be three, three like huge like world states based around um Germany in Europe, America, um in Oceania and uh, and Russia no uh, in Japan and Russia in in East Asia. Where does Africa? Africa, well, um, Africa. I don't know how it fits into that book. I mean, in nineteen eighty four, Africa is just like this kind of like empty space, isn't it? Where like it's like they fight, they fight over the yeah, like they fight over Africa over slave. But yeah, that's uh, that that was one thing when I was reading like the the sort of Goldstein manual where he's talking about the three super states. I was like. Where, where does Africa go? Where does Australia go? Like, the, it's weird to me how, like, there are the, like, 
there are these blank spaces in this so-called like total like world totalitarian system mm-hmm. like um and it does seem to me like africa's just the shit that you fight over like yeah and because you need something to fight over yeah. so why not africa yeah. but 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 like in this book um that that book kind of basically draws a direct comparison between like it, it sees no distinction between stalinism and nazism um and and the thing that it the the, the reason why it sees no distinction is because it sees it purely as it sees both of them purely as examples of what will happen in the future which is managerialism and and basically like this 1984 seems to seems to like adopt this this sort of similar you know it does it does something which which has been happening ever since the second world war and and before which is it this sort of equation of the equation of of like fascism with communism as both examples of like this sort of bland totalitarianism without yeah. without any without any distinction in terms of 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 what the two kind of forms of thought are whether or not like like what the origins of them are like yeah. it's you know it's it's purely a it's purely kind of a technique of um, of sort of justifying the sort of status quo of 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 now, yeah. um, and this novel seems to kind of like fit into. I mean, I don't think it's deliberate. I'm not even sure that that like that was Orwell's intention or not. But I don't but think it, it was. but it definitely like falls into it falls into that kind of way of thinking, and that and just as a sort of like I mean, because I haven't really looked further into this book yet but um but recently in 2013 uh this james burnham book appeared again uh because because it kind of like seems to have sort of been buried for a while yeah um but in 2013 uh glenn beck did a did a segment on it um and he said it was like kind of a lost classic so so it's quite interesting. It, it it seems like something that's interesting about this book is the way that it the way that nineteen eighty four seems to sit in the middle of a lot of the ways that that we've become like that we that we sort of tell history yeah. now. Like after I read that thing about that Barnum book, then I thought maybe like maybe like we're misreading this novel by thinking maybe. Maybe like the 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 mistake or or like the the sort of convenient mistake that's often made with this mo- with this novel is to think it's a representation of totalitarianism, but I was thinking, what if it's a representation of of bureaucracy? What if it's just about bureaucracy? Or what if we what if we like like misread it deliberately to be just about just bureaucracy? About, just being about. Because it made because I was thinking you know like I mean, um, I mean Orwell did say it was a parody maybe it's just a parody of like a dude who works in an office <laughs> that's just it it's just all about like a guy who works in an office well, that's the thing is this is the office <laughs> like nineteen eighty four is just the office. <laughs> 
and that's literally where it all go- comes down to. Well, well, it well it is like in the sense of you know, isn't isn't this just a no? Doesn't Winston have like the ultimate bullshit job? Isn't yeah, it like he does. like <laughs> like like his job is basically to to burn pictures. <laughs> that does. Like the the job that literally like a a machine can do because that's like the 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 key point uh or like the key kind of characteristic of a bullshit job is when you're doing it and you're saying like a robot or a monkey could do this as well as I am doing it now because it's so repetitive. That's basically what Winston does is he yeah. he just like burns pictures and then like strikes out like um you know text. Like a computer could do that. Like, why would you need to hire people to do that? I, I'm just, I'm thinking this would be like, it'd be great if somebody like filmed a version of 1984 in the style of The Office. I think it'd be amazing. It'd be just amazing. Can you, can you imagine like, can you imagine like the way that um in the like in room 101 like when O'Brien is sort of like going off on one of his sort of big long speeches about the the sort of the nature of big brother and then the camera just kind of like turns to turns to Winston Smith who looks at the camera and just does like some weird weird awkward eye yeah. I don't like oh yeah, yeah that's the other thing I wanted to talk about like because that was one of the things I didn't know coming into this book is what was in room 101 and I felt kind of let down, and maybe that maybe that's kind of the point because I think maybe like this is either like Orwell being a really intelligent writer. Like there's this idea that maybe like Room One Hundred One is good. It's not necessarily a twist in the sense of like some M Night Shyamalan movie where it turns out that like the entirety of society is just dead and like the party is literally the last living remnant of humanity. But just that you would you would see a kind of fundamental philosophical truth of this society that's so horrifying that the embrace of the party is your only salvation, even down to the, the most kind of obscure mental level. The only way you're going to survive that truth is just to give yourself to the party full stop. No, it's just fucking rats. <laughs> it's just rats. <laughs> like and in like in some sense maybe that is like what Orwell's going for is there is a little bit of a build up build up build up yeah, it's, it's rats. like but it's not rats for everybody no no it's but, rats for Winston it's I like know. it's Winston I think the, the the thing is like it's Winston's you know it's Winston's worst fear but the thing is like when you live in like the totalitarian society that Winston lives in, Winston's got everything to fear, including the thought police. So why are yeah. rats his worst fear? Yeah. Like he's been tortured by like by like a totalitarian um like thought policeman. <laughs> why are rats the thing that he's most afraid of? If I was if I was like Winston, by the time I got to room 101 with the thought policeman and he was going to like show me my worst fear, surely like I'd want to see another thought policeman because I'd just been reading like That's it, but the thing is that room 101 is just sort of a representation of the thought police. Or is it just or is it just like, is this just another one of those things where like, is it the thought that the thought police what the rats shows is like the total lack of imagination of the thought police like you've got to imagine, like they've got this whole bureaucracy, like yeah. they've built this whole massive bureaucracy, which is designed 
for the purpose of keeping every single person under constant surveillance so that they can find out like your deepest like most personal secrets yeah. and use it against you yeah. and and then like so they so they've like what have they done to Winston okay they've spent like O'Brien spent 7 years targeting Winston like like in his life he's produced a whole like document written by like a subversive like figure he of has the a brotherhood total image of Winston. he's he's a total image of Winston he's like he's he's had he's like he's he's entrapped him um with the shopkeeper he's encouraged him to like confess in his own diary he's um you know he's 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 created this whole world for Winston to occupy a bit like the Truman show yeah and then and he's caught him and he's taken him um into like the ministry of love where where Winston's been um like beaten tortured like psychologically broken down and all of this is leading to room 101 yeah <laughs> at the point at which like the thought police like reveal themselves to, to have like the most sort of limited like like the thought police at that point use all of their knowledge of Winston everything they know about Winston and the best that they can come up with <laughs> It's like, it's like we're gonna like, we've, we've designed this machine that we can attach your face. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about it, the, <laughs> I wish they had just called it like the rat hat. But the thing about it is that you didn't like if you if you if you invented a rat hat. You don't need the rest of like the totalitarian system because <laughs> you can take him. You can take anybody directly to room one hundred and one and threaten them yeah, with rats like, eating like, their faces like, off. That's the thing. Is like who's not gonna be dead frightened of the rat? <laughs> like it's it's so like. That's the thing is I like you, you say that like it's not rats for everybody. I actually think it might be rats for everybody. Like because because at the end of the day it's just like it is a really unimaginative thing like to just say that everybody's scared of the rat. <laughs> and so and so like they're saying that like this is this is the one point where O'Brien is actually just bullshitting Winston is saying like it is your worst fear and and the thing is, is that you you put them through such a huge a, like a long process that they're willing to accept anything and that that really they're, they're like yes i agree that rats was indeed everything i was scared of like that is the culmination of all my terrors is the rat i wanted to talk about like the i don't know why i'm just obsessed with like Orwell and sex. Uh, you wanted to talk about um, Winston's like weird relationship with women. Is that what you? I wanted to talk about like their their sex scene and like this idea of like morality and stuff. Um, where was it? Oh yeah, like quickly with an occasional crackle of the twigs, they threaded their way back to the clearing. When they were once inside the ring of saplings, she turned and faced him. They were both breathing fast but the smile had reappeared around the corners of her mouth. She stood looking at him for an instant, 
then felt at the zipper of her overalls. And yes, it was almost as in his dream, almost as swiftly as he had imagined it. She had torn her clothes off, and when she flung them aside, it was with that same magnificent gesture by which a whole civilization seemed to be annihilated. Her body gleamed white in the sun, but for a moment he did not look at her body. His eyes were anchored by the freckled face with its faint, bold smile. He knelt down before her and took her hands in his. Had he done this before? Of course, hundreds of times. Well, scores of times, anyway. With party members? Yes, always with party members. With members of the inner party? Not with those swine, no. But there's plenty that would if they got half a chance. They're not so holy as they make out. His heart leapt. Scores of times she had done it. He wished it had been hundreds, thousands. Anything that hinted at corruption always filled him with a wild hope. Who knew? Perhaps the party was rotten under the surface. Its cult of strenuousness and self-denial simply a sham concealing iniquity. If he, had, if he could have infected the whole lot of them with leprosy or syphilis, how gladly he would have done so. Anything to rot, to weaken, to undermine. He pulled her down so that they were kneeling face to face. Yeah, that's enough. It, it was that, that passage there where he, he like starts to like revel in the idea of like corruption and disease and uh, like, I would like to infect them all with syphilis. Um, I thought that was a really interesting kind of counterpoint to the very end of the novel where like after he's sort of gone through his transformative experience, he's, um, he, he starts reflecting on the, the torture sessions as a kind of almost like Catholic confessional where like I am a burdening myself and he starts to talk about himself as like my body is pure white because um, and so there like that those sort of distinctions between like purity and corruption those like to me don't have such an explicitly kind of political content. And yet, like Orwell is, is like, like I said before, he's really like into the idea of like body and bodily corruption and and like that sort of hard, um, hard kind of like image uh, image of, of like where like the, the the physical the physical presentation of the body is essentially a kind of um, analog to the presentation of the soul, the moral presentation of the soul. Um, and which obviously doesn't seem to be the case because his soul has been like, I guess, gone through the ringer. I mean, there is this kind of thing about like, about sex as, as something that like, you know, when it says, um, she flung them aside as it was with that same magnificent gesture by which a whole civilization seemed to be annihilated. You know, there's this kind of sense of, of like, of like sex as a, as a force in itself that, that will overthrow the totalitarian system and it's yeah. true that it's true that like one of the things about like about the Ingsoc society is that it's it's sort of extremely puritanical when it yeah. comes to to sex yeah. and um uh, and then the, like a bit further on from the bit that you read there's a bit where it says uh, that was above all what he wanted to hear not merely the love of one person but the animal instinct, a simple, undifferenti undifferentiated desire, that was the force that would tear the party to pieces. Yeah. And and what I was when I was reading that, I was thinking, it's you know it's it's quite interesting in the sense that it 
it when you think forward to like you know like the 60s and and the the sort of sexual revolution yeah you know there was this kind of idea of of sort of free love as being as being something sort of deeply threatening to to like the the system um which which in a way like orwell is is anticipating you know you see that also in like other kind of books that were kind of popular at that time like things like um isn't like you know like herman hess and like steppenwolf and uh, i'm sure there's like something like that kind of thing in, in there but the but the the but what what i was kind of thinking was is is this like when i was reading that i was thinking is this sort of idea of of sex and as a response to the puritanical is it something that that is about totalitarianism or is it is it just something that's very much like orwell sort of moaning about like the 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 sort of prissiness of of his own moment do you think that i think i mean i think it's probably all of the above right because I think that that he does see that if there is any if there is any hope, you know, it's not with the proletariat. It's not. It's certainly not with the party itself. It, it might just be in like sheer, like that that point at which the human meets the animal in in, in its own psyche, where. Um, where uh, I mean, in that sense, like you get the the comparison with like the the sixties and the counterculture of the sexual revolution is probably pretty apt because at that point, that's that that is sort of the era where you start seeing a real turn against any kind of um system, any kind of politics that. Is not necessarily totalitarian, not even totalitarian, but does try to think about society as a total thing. And that's the era where you start getting those that kind of equation. Like, if you start thinking of politics as a total thing, then it's you know only two steps. You know, all you have to do is just wait for the the next Stalin or Hitler character to kind of step into the the political scene. And then, boom, you've got a totalitarian system. And so that's why, that's where you start getting a turn against, like, political parties as, as um, you know, mass organizations. That's where you start getting, um, uh, like, turn against, like, uh, where there is that kind of sense that, that if we could just sort of release our, our, our sort of inner energy you know and um you know in some instances it's like that inner child crap right where it's like if we could get to that kind of more primitive part of who we are as individuals and maybe as societies the there then that that will kind of spur a, a, a kind of constant revolutionizing that can in itself never be so static that it could ever be a kind of totalitarian system like all it, it just becomes a kind of free flow of energy and all of that kind of stuff and and to a certain extent i'm kind of cool with that like uh i mean i i do think that that there's a lot there was a lot of like 
a lot of better thinking in that that I those ideas that a lot of, than a lot of people you know in in 2017 are willing to give credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a, I think it was limited. In a way well, but too. but also because because there's one side of it was. Um, you know, like what you see in uh, at the end of Mad Men. You know, Don Draper goes to like one of them. Yeah, he goes to like excellent. Yeah, yeah, and and he, but like the outcome of like of Don Draper like going there is that he he produces like the ultimate advert, which is like the Coca Cola yeah, advert. Yeah, yeah. So and and actually, like what happens in that moment is is the that kind of way that like the the sort of like. The, the, the sort of like freedom and like the free desires of the of the kind of sixties uh, were then transposed. The counterculture was like transposed into like the spirit of of like new capitalism. Yeah. So that so that capitalism then became about like freeing your desires and and um and removing your inhibitions and allowing you to kind of like be what whatever you you wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and and that and and like there's that kind of like corruption of those ideas that that we now you, you know like every you know like every advert you see now is about like somebody kind of like you know like mobile phone adverts or car car adverts or or like they're always about like being free and like you know they're all like the hazy kind of nostalgia for like the sixties there's all this kind of like Instagrammy yeah. sort of freedom. It's that weird Instagram thing where like yo make your make the photograph that you took last week look like something that was taken in the sixties is really bizarre to me. Um, but yeah, the, because it remind but it reminds us of, of freedom. It's the filter, like it's the freedom filter, isn't it? Like yeah. it's like your shitty life. No, they don't call like, it the freedom filter. No, no, they, oh, okay. no they, I, I don't know. Maybe they do, but they like, should call like, just the freedom filter. But like, so like American. the idea. I mean, to me, the idea is that you take a photo, uh, like, like you, you take the photo, and you take the photo in like kind of like kind of a sort of just like every other photo. You take like hundreds of photos every day, don't you? Like, yeah. This part of your like shit. No, I don't. It's just, all. just, it's just like part of your your shitty life. You've yeah. got another shitty photo from your life. And then you put the freedom filter on it, and it reminds you about like all of the freedom that you that you had when you took that photo. <laughs> okay, I think we'll stop there on the incredibly tenuous relationship between George Orwell and Instagram. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed the first official episode of the Savage Reading Podcast and that you keep listening. I'd like to give a small update on what we might be doing in the very near future. Keep an eye out for uh, what I'm calling episode zero, which is just Mark and I having a discussion about why we wanted to do the podcast in the first place and some of the ways in which we'll be choosing and discussing literature keep an eye out for a little bit of a side episode to this one from Mark on James Herbert's sci-fi horror uh, novel from 1974 called The Rats. Our next full episode will be on Roger Zelazny's 1979 novel Road Marks, which I thought was a fantasy sci-fi version of the road novel, and I have to say I was mostly wrong. And we'll also be doing sometime in the near future 
Monique Wittig's uh, war novel from 1969, Les Guerrières, or The Gorillas for all of you non-Francophiles, and Naomi Alderman's novel from just last year, uh, The Power. So keep an eye out for that as well. We might be opening the podcast up to suggestions and recommendations, and hopefully get a few more contributors beyond just Mark and I. So I hope you've enjoyed it, and please keep listening.